shoulder, we rifle and loot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. Ahoy, me podcast listeners. Join us at the Three Men in Retrospective podcast as we run a shot across the bow and review the entire Pirates of the Caribbean film series. Listen in as myself and me two mates, Garrett and Matt, walk the plank and parlay every piece of this Disney franchise that has made over four and a half billion in price. We're beggars and flyers and ne'er do well cast, drink up me hearties, yo ho! I bet we're loved by our mommies and dads, drink up me hearties, yo ho! So strap yourselves in, grab the rum, and scupper ye headphones. Percolated media is fixing to pillage your airwaves right now. Drink up me hearties, yo ho! Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. And toast to pirates. Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, released July 9th, 2003, Budget was $140 million, with a box office gross of $654 million, and this was directed by Gore Verbinski. It finally happened. I committed mutiny on Garrett, and I am now leading these shows. For those of you who don't know, you're a first-time listener, or an exclusive listener to Percolated Media. I have been someone who has led some of these retrospectives back when we were at Binge, so don't think this is something I have never done before, although if I keep drinking, it will certainly sound like it. But why are we drinking? Well, we're talking about a movie about pirates. This is a franchise that uh, I have a lot of things to say about as we go through, but before we talk about this, why we picked it, all that good stuff, i got to introduce my first mate, Mr. Garrett Collins. Garrett, how does it feel to be sitting back after so many retros of you doing all these plot summaries? It's amazing, because all I have to worry about now is where the rum is. Well, the person who took the rum might be the third person on this show, our quartermaster, Mr. Adam Bunch. Drink up, me arties, yo-ho. Hey, everybody. Well, Adam must be happy, because we're actually taking a detour from King to talk about pirates. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> How happy will he be it remains to be seen. But yes. let's answer the question. Why are we doing this retrospective? Well, this is one of those you scratch my back, I scratch your type of negotiations with working with Garrett all these years. Uh, for the longest of time, actually, this is a franchise that I've wanted to do in our format for quite some time. And with this being the 20th anniversary of the first movie, which I, I felt the great wow. start to creep into my hairline as I said that, because I could pinpoint where I was when I saw this movie. It, it seemed inappropriate as time as ever. And when you're filling out a schedule, it just so happened that, you know, we got five movies. It fits perfectly. It's a break from King. But before I get into my personal experiences with, with these movies, I'm going to go to you guys first. Garrett, you know, you're a movie guy. You're also, though, not someone who is necessarily someone who watches populist cinema. So i got to ask, what is your particular relationship with these movies? These movies, with the exception of one, are all one-and-done movies. With the final one that came out in 2017, in that movie's case, there's a none-and-done. I have never seen that movie, and I'll be watching it for the first time for this retrospective. Now, that is not to say I'm coming in very bitter, because I remember going to those movies and actually pretty much enjoying it 
because I really liked one of the stars that we'll talk about as we get into this. But I don't have that big of a relationship with them other than the fact that I took my brother to the first one. And, well, we'll talk about next week's when we get there. But they are all one-and-done movies. And my curiosity going in was, how have they aged? I remember having a decent enough time with the majority of them. But how they aged was a big factor. I, I'm just thinking, God, there has to be something that, may, that prevented me from coming back to these movies. And, Matt, you pushed for it, pushed for it for many years when we were at Binge. And I just kind of resisted. So caving in, I'm just thinking, okay. What is the reason why these movies made as much as they did? Because they have made five movies, working on a sixth. There has to be a reason for that. So there's a lot of good conversations to be had about your experience. But Adam, as someone who's the closest of the three of us to Disneyland, do you have an affinity for this series whatsoever? I had an affinity for the ride, and I do. I love the ride. And that kept me from seeing the movie in theaters that we're going to discuss here, just out of sheer spite <laughs> of anything. This wasn't going to be another Country Bear scenario where I got hoodwinked. So being as close to Disneyland as I am, going there as frequently as we do, and Pirates of the Caribbean, and there's a big difference between the ride in Florida and in Anaheim. It's so much faster of a ride in Anaheim. I love that ride. I am immersed in that ride. So it took a lot for me to be convinced to go along with the ride here when I finally watch this movie. It was a Netflix movie when I first watched it. Netflix by mail, if anybody remembers how that was. That's how Oh my I, goodness. At least the first two movies I believe watched that way. And I have to say too is that I am also a huge fan of that ride. There's just something about going to Disneyland and then the, you're in line and you're just going in that cave and you are immersed amongst all these rocks and the boats going by and everything. And once you're on that ride, it is magical. Adam, I believe when we went to Disneyland for our senior trip, we went on it. We sure did. I have very fond memories of the ride. I haven't been on it since right after the second movie opened, but it is a tremendous ride. And there was just something weird about taking that ride and making it into a movie. But the addition of one actor definitely had me sucked in. That ride was a big part of me too. Like I, I really, really enjoyed that ride. I've never been to Disneyland, but I have been to Disney World, where there is the Pirates of the Caribbean at Magic Kingdom. I was lucky that I was able to go at a young age before the movies came out, because they refurbished the ride mm -hmm. after the success of the movies to include elements. So I, I've seen both. I don't necessarily have a preference for either one, because it's been a long time since I've been to Disney. But the park is a good place to start, to be perfectly honest, because, yeah, that is where the idea for this movie came from. And for years and years, this is going to shock people, there was a time where Disney didn't hike up its skirt and whore itself out because they resisted making movies based off, the, off of their attractions for the longest mm -hmm. time. It was a key discussion point for decades until all of a sudden they made three within the span of a year and a half. We had the Country Bears, which was the very first one, Technically, there was the Tower of Terror movie with Steve Gutenberg, but that was directed to TV. Absolutely. So I don't necessarily count it. There was this, and then there was The Haunted Mansion starring Eddie Murphy. So it's amazing that they went from hard pass to, fuck it, we're going to start doing this. And Michael Eisner, to talk about the production of this movie, this was the one he wanted to make the least. Yeah. And let me ask you guys, do you know the reason why? Well, it was Country Bears. 
was the big reason, because they released Country Bears and it completely flopped. He didn't want that. But the other reason was he hated Johnny Depp in this movie. He thought he was a terrible choice. And he really tried getting this thing shut down. But what I heard was he came by the set and Verbinski had all the concepts and everything that they had in mind for this movie out for Eisner to see. And once Eisner saw those, he kind of saw what they were talking about. He's like, okay, go ahead and make your movie. Yeah, he was very much against spending this much money on something that was looked at as box office poison. Pirate mm-hmm. movies were, for the longest of time, not profitable. One of the most infamous box office bombs of all time is Cutthroat Island. That's a pirate movie. Yeah, and I saw. I was one of the few that saw that in theaters. Um, God bless. You. But even growing up, I remember there was a movie called The Pirate Movie from 1982. And I remember seeing that. But, yeah, pirate movies were not box office attractions. They were not making money. They were cursed. Yeah, exactly. They were cursed. So there were a lot of things going against this movie going in. And, Matt, we said it in our year-end show. We said this is one of the most unlikely hits of all time. Well, it had so many things going against it that, I mean, Rennie Harlan probably saw this and said, what the fuck, why didn't people come to my movie? Uh, It was just like, (laughs) it's crazy to me that it got made, let alone became the phenomenon and franchise that it did. It's one of the, and I, and I say this in my lifetime, it's one of the most surprising successes, I think, when you look at quote-unquote original properties. You know, this is not technically based on a book or a superhero movie, but this was the first franchise, and yes, we will talk about the other movies, where two movies in a franchise made a billion dollars each worldwide. That, that had never happened before for something that largely Eisner didn't want to make due to financial reasons. There was the whole thing of he didn't want to spend this kind of money on something that was not going to be a guaranteed hit. So I, I can't say I fault him in that rationale, but the players in this movie, it sort of is amazing when you when you take a step back and, and look at it 20 years in reference. Let's start with the director, Gore Verbinski. When you look at his filmography, very interesting mm-hmm. stuff oh, yeah. for this. I mean, his first movie was Mouse Hunt, which is, yeah. I think, a, a terrific slapstick comedy. He made The Mexican, which is crap, in my opinion. Oh, is that the Julia Roberts? Yeah, oh my Julia God, Roberts and Brad Pitt. Horrible. Oh, but, I didn't know he did that one. Yeah, but then he made The Ring. He did the American yeah. remake of that, Love which it. I think is one of the best remakes out there. And I think that's what got him this gig, honestly. It was talked about, but he was signed on because he wanted to, and this is Verbinski, which, this is one of the great movies, I think, of if you like special features and commentary tracks. The special features on this movie are second to none, and Verbinski is a great guy to listen to. He talked about how he wanted to use modern technology to bring back a genre that had died, basically. You know, pirate movies were, in the 30s and 40s, Errol Flynn made them popular with Captain Blood. They were, at a time, immensely profitable. And then he said, you know, I have nostalgia for the ride because it has this blend of being funny sometimes morbidly so, but there's some chills if you're a younger kid, and he said he wanted to bring that to the movie. If you look at The Ring as an example, that's PG-13, and he still was able to make some really provocative, terrifying stuff. It helps that he had a movie to base it on, but you wouldn't think that this is someone that could handle a movie of this scale, especially when you look at his budget. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very unusual choice. I guess you could say that he was the one who brought the chills to this, but could he handle a high-scale production like this? Could he handle what Redney Harlan couldn't, which is a huge budget along with these big-name actors? And when you're directing a movie like this, you got to deal with more than just 
directing the scenes. You have to deal with actors' egos. You have to deal with getting a best performance out of the actors. There's a whole lot that goes into directing one of these films. Not to mention you're filming on fucking water. Ask Spielberg how fun that is. There are so many things that were going against him coming in, which is why I was kind of surprised that he took the big scale production that he did. He was unproven. With The Ring, he was fine. That was lower scale. The Mexican I haven't seen, although I haven't heard anything good about that movie. But yeah, it is a very unusual choice. I'm surprised since Bruckheimer was the producer here, he didn't bring his buddy Michael Bay on to direct this. So once they signed Verbinski, Disney talked about, okay, are we going to release this movie theatrically or is it going to be direct to video? That was a big sticking point. And apparently, based on what avenue they went, would have reflected the actors that they got. So originally, when this was going to be direct-to-video, Christopher Walken and Carrie Elways were in line to play some of the main characters. Yeah, I read that. And then... Dread Pirate Roberts. Yeah, and also, when they said, all right, we're going to do this theatrically, we'll, we'll talk about the casting once again of the movie and, and some of the characters, but we're going to talk about some of the marketing. Because I remember as a nine-year-old kid, when the teaser trailer came out for this, people kind of scoffed. It's like, okay, you're making a movie based on a ride, and they don't show much. It's just They'll show the landscape of the Caribbean with the islands, and they come together to form the skull. The one shot you see from the movie is the pirate foot underwater. Yeah. It's a great teaser. And I'd be asked, as a 10-year-old boy when this came out, I think this is why I have such an affinity for the franchise, I guess, as a whole, is that if you're a 10-year-old boy, these are kind of everything you want in movies. Yeah, and I remember this teaser being introduced when I went and saw The Two Towers, Lord of the Rings. This was introduced before that because they wanted the fact that people were there to see Orlando Bloom to see that he was in another movie that was coming out that year. And I did the same thing. I looked at this and I scoffed. I'm like, what the fuck are they doing here? They're making this based on a fucking ride? There was nothing about this that was really appealing to me. So it was a sticking point to me where, well, here comes something that's going to flop. And I think that's what everybody thought, honestly. Yeah, people thought this was going to be something that Disney would just lock in their vault and never see again. Because there was also the first movie released under Walt Disney's banner that was PG-13. They had Touchstone as one of their acquired production companies where they could do harder edge movies. But this was PG-13, actors that have become big names because of this movie. We'll definitely talk about that, but this was a smash success as the box office numbers I mentioned earlier. Affinity for everybody, like, got great reviews, and it has spawned a franchise we're going to talk about for the next month. But the most surprising thing when you look at this is the Academy Awards, not that they are the standard bearer of quality, but Johnny Depp received a nomination for yeah. actor at the Oscars mm-hmm. for a movie that everybody scoffed at when it was announced. It's sort of the precursor to Heath Ledger for The Dark Knight, where it does show that the Academy is willing to look at, I guess, things they would normally scoff at if the quality is there. And we'll talk about whether or not this performance is as warranted as it is. Absolutely. And Heath Ledger's name is going to come up because he was up for one of the roles in this as well. Oh, um, is that enough preamble? I think so. I mean, we've discussed a lot of the hesitation and a lot of the what the fuck when it came to this movie. How much did you say this movie made? $654 million. That is insane. That is insane to think about. And I think this is the lowest or second lowest grossing of the franchise. Yeah. God damn. People thought this was going to be a flop, like I said, and it was, it dominated seven consecutive weekends at the box office. It was number one. The only movies that broke its record, one of them was a sequel, and the other one was Avatar. Wow. Now, I saw this opening weekend. I went with my brother and a friend of ours. We all went together, and we came out of there thinking that we had seen 
a freaking masterpiece. We loved this movie when we came out of it. Matt, what about you? I vividly remember going to see this with I think my mom. Yeah, my mom took me, took my cousin Eric, and took my. This is where it gets. Uh, took my grandfather actually. He wanted to go, and I saw this movie three times in the theater as a ten year old. Wow! Because I got to go with like you know I went with friends one time where it was one of those old theaters where you sit in and they bring you actual food. So yeah, I. I, I was obsessed with this movie when I was a kid. And, and I was not alone. This was one of the, for my generation, I think this is almost as big as Harry Potter in a certain way, as far as oh, yeah. it appeals to both men and boys and girls for different reasons. There's a character in this that I think is as well known as Harry Potter. Like you say the name Jack Sparrow, people know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, Captain Jack Sparrow. Yeah, Captain Jack Sparrow. So, there's. <laughs> Yeah, who knew that this would bond what it has? And is it worth it? Well, let's get into the movie. And for the record, everybody, spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We open with the title of the movie on full display. There's no opening credits, really, or things of that nature. We open on a fog-filled day where we see a young girl humming slash singing the sailor's tune from the ride, the Yo-Ho song. Certainly a very atmospheric opening with the fog and can't really see what's happening. And you're opening on a child, which was something that was not necessarily marketed. Yeah. And this was a shot that was actually five shots in one. And they literally finished it a few days before the film's opening. That's how long they worked on this. And it is an ominous but great way to get you into it because you're expecting, okay, is it going to be Orlando Bloom? Is it going to be Johnny Depp? Oh, no, it's this little girl singing the theme from that that actual ride. I, I think it's a very nice way to start. So we're introduced to who will be some of our key players. There's a commander that says all the information about how much he hates pirates. We see the girl's father. So we're doing some good stuff with this prologue and introducing characters who are going to be both integral to the story and important background characters. It's an effective prologue as we see they pull a young boy out of the water who, after a sunken ship that they salvage, the boy's alive. girl says, I'm here. But gives the name, name's Will Turner, and she takes a piece of gold off of his person. So for someone who's not a pirate, she commits thievery right away. (laughs) By the way, what I love about this movie, too, you mentioned pirate. What I love about it is this was one of the first Blu-rays I ever got. And it says there's an anti-piracy warning on it (laughs) when you put it in. I always thought that was funny. Yeah, I think this gets you in really well, and I think the atmosphere is something that Gore Verbinski brings. Not to give my hand too much away, but I think once Gore Verbinski leaves this franchise, that atmosphere is deeply missed. Here, this is tremendous. I was really sucked in by what this beginning scene and the characters it introduces brings to this story. Adam, how are you feeling as this prologue unfolds? I really like that it opens up with them singing the song directly from the ride. I think that was for anybody that's thinking, oh, they're not going to be faithful to the ride, or oh, they're going to do too much. I think it's a great little way to do it. I like seeing young Elizabeth and, and young William. But then we even get characters that you don't see for an hour later. Like we get Mr. Gibbs here on this boat. And we don't really understand why later, but he joins the pirates. So, you know, you got Mr. Gibbs. What I don't care for necessarily and it kind of bugs me throughout and it's just a personal thing of mine is seeing stuffy british men in wigs <laughs> it just it, it always bugs me but i do like at least who they cast around it's a nice prologue it's a nice way to set up the film because whatever you thought you were going in to see i don't think this would be what you would have anticipated and one of the things that eisner really protested when he thought about the production of this movie was all the references to that ride, which, I mean, you watch a Marvel movie today, there are nothing but references in those movies, you know, Star Wars, 
in the Disney films, all references to the previous trilogies. Here, we're getting references to those rides, and as somebody who is not a big fan of those, <clears throat> Deadpool, I think the way they use references here, every single time one of them comes up, and, I, and me and Adam, I'm sure, will point them out as they come. I think they're all done very well, and they're woven into the story excellently. The movie never pauses to call those things out, and I think that's the key in judging successful fan service. If it's organically weaved into the story, I don't think you can really complain about it. Because there are, I counted, two major ones. There's this one and one later on. So they rescue Will, and Elizabeth sees what will become the titular Black Pearl in the distance. She sees the ship's got sails that have holes in them. She sees the pirate flag. We smash cut to a grown-up Elizabeth, played by Kira Knightley, fresh off being tormented by Natalie Portman on the set of The Phantom Menace. <laughs> Which we'll discuss oh, later on this year. Poor Corday. She was 17 at the time of this movie's filming, which is amazing to me. I didn't realize she was that young. Yeah, it really is. You know what? She's great. I really enjoy her in this. There's some stories that she says about the corsets of this and how she loved being in the costumes and thinking, oh, my God, I finally have tits. Her words, exactly. <laughs> oh my God, like these and she has the perfect attitude for this. And you know what? She's not a damsel in distress, as a lot of these pirate movies are. I think she really brings a lot to this role. And it's a demure bit of casting that works out to its benefit. She is tremendous in this movie. Yeah, I can't disagree with anything there. It's amazing that Karen Knightley looks today that she did back when she was 17. Put her side by side. She doesn't look any different nowadays. She's an ageless Disney princess, Disney pirate princess, pretty much. She is one of the two that I don't think you could cast any other way and have the success the way that it's gone. I think there's three, actually, so I'll, I'll fight you on that to a certain extent. But what I like about Elizabeth as a character is that she could have very easily just been someone who was there to be rescued. But I think the writers, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a duo, do a really good job of giving her both agency. She's got knowledge without having to expulse where she got it from. We just get the sense, you can tell, coming from wealth, she's pretty well-educated. She probably would very likely know about piracy because she knows about it as a little girl. So I, I think it's great storytelling, which is expelled upon further because we see that she takes out the gold coin that she took from Will, puts it on as a necklace. Clearly, she has not worn it for quite some time because it's covered in dust. But before she can do anything and sort of put it back, she's interrupted by her father, played by James Bond alumni Jonathan Price, who is the, yes. the governor of the town, and tells her, you know, I have a gift for you. Gives her a dress and a corset to wear to Norrington's promotion, who is a character we met in the prologue, who is becoming Commodore. And the father is really egging her on to say, you should marry this guy. Going back to the writers, you mentioned there are two writers. There are actually three. And one of the writers of this, he wrote a draft of this. I believe it was in the mid-90s when they were trying to produce this and Eisner was really putting the kibosh on it. And this was a guy who worked in a lot of game shows way back when, didn't do a lot of film. And then these two guys who came in, what they really brought to it was the supernatural element. And what's funny about these two guys, I was I was checking them out, Matt. And you mentioned in our year-end show that... One of the movies that you loved as a kid but hate as an adult is Little Monsters. These two guys helped write that movie. Oh, wow. (laughs) 
<laughs> and you know what? What they brought to this was a supernatural element, and I want to play this hand right now. I think that adds so much to this movie, and it was a great idea to do, because if this was just a straight pirate movie, I don't think there would be as many dimensions as there are. So in that way, I really enjoy what these two guys brought to this script. There are so many things going on in this movie that it can get out of hand, and I think what the script writing and what the directing does in this that's so well is keep it all within striking distance of actually telling a perfectly woven story. I think this is one of the great movies that people should study as far as the way information is given through both little lines of dialogue that work as foreshadowing. I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of really clever stuff in the script that I don't think the movie gets enough credit for because it's just perceived as a dumb action movie. And I think it's so much more than that. But speaking of so much more, she's crowbarred into a corset with the great line, well, women in London must have learned how not to breathe. <laughs> so she's going to get Hugh Norrington's promotion, but told there's a visitor downstairs as the grown-up Will, played by fresh off Lord of the Rings, Orlando Bloom. And we're adhered to Will almost immediately because he commits vandalism by accidentally breaking the candelabra that's hanging on the side of the door. So I said about Orlando Bloom... I don't think I've ever done this on the show, because it's not like we've done Lord of the Rings yet or anything like that. I think he's good at one thing. He's good at being likable, and he's got presence. And I think that works for this character, because he's not asked to do a whole lot. It's not that he's naive. It's that his character goes through an arc where he has to learn how to be much more cunning in order to survive. And I, I think that carries over throughout this movie. And I know there were some other actors... I guess, of more prestige and certainly more range that were up for this role. But I think he's totally serviceable. I definitely think of the principal four, he would be the most interchangeable, though. He's definitely serviceable, but there's a problem with him. And the big problem with him is not his fault. It's the fact that he has to be the quote-unquote straight guy of this piece. He has to be the one who doesn't come at it from seven different angles. He has to come at it from one. And that is a very, very thankless role to be in. Look who he's acting against, for God's sake, who we'll talk about here in a bit. And so against him, I don't think anybody would come out looking like roses. But I think what with what he's asked to do, in the production, I, I guess he was trying really hard to kind of up all his lines and try to say them all in different ways. And Verbinski is the one who told him, look, we have somebody who's doing that already. We need you to kind of be the straight guy of this production. And so he had to play it down. I think he's fine. I just don't think that he is given much to adhere us to him the way that he was, say, Legolas, where he was a background character in this previous franchise that you already mentioned. So I think he's fine. I just don't think the dimensions are there. Yeah, I agree with that too. But I don't feel that just with Orlando Bloom. I kind of feel that with the character. It's another one that's there and... Matt, as you said, there's three that are interchangeable, that are perfectly cast, I'll agree. There's three. Orlando Bloom's not one of them. But yeah, he's serviceable. He's fine. But in this movie, when you're fine and everybody else around you is shining, it makes you dim. And that's not necessarily a fault of his. I do think it's a fault of the writing team kind of going in a bunch of different directions with a lot of different tones throughout. But he is literally the definition of he's fine in this role. He's there to deliver a sword that has been anointed, and we see that he takes it personally because the governor assumes that his master made the sword, not necessarily him. So this is a character who considers himself looked down upon and clearly has feelings for Elizabeth, but he can't act upon them because, well, he doesn't come from money. He's a poor blacksmith, and he doesn't even have his own shop. There's no chance they would ever be put together. So in just one minute, you know everything you need to know about the relationship between these two characters, and they move on because this movie, it's long, but it's very economical with how it uses its time. Yeah, I did not feel the length at all. 
watching it this time, and I thought I would. I don't know if it's just because the three of us are just coming off of reviewing Avatar, for Christ's sake, and Marvel movies. We have felt lengthy films, and we're going to feel a lot more. I don't think I feel lengthy anymore, but I think when it comes to this movie, I think the way it's so, as you said, Matt, economically told, I don't feel the length at all. So speaking of economics, we got to talk about the grand entrance of the next scene of the top-billed star, Captain Jack Sparrow, played by Johnny Depp, where he gets this heroic Hans Zimmer music. We see him on the mast of a ship, but then they cut, and you see that his, A, his ship is sinking, and B, he has this little rowboat, basically. It's not his own giant ship, and he arrives to Port Royal as the ship is sinking. Such a fucking amazing entrance. One of the best character entrances I can remember. Um, I had an issue coming into this. I had a real big problem in thinking, okay, we all know what Johnny Depp's gone through the last couple years. We all know that he hasn't had the best PR in the last couple years. And so could I come into this movie thinking like I did when I came into it the first time? Could I come into this and not think about any of that stuff at all? And the answer to that is yes. You got to remember, coming into this movie, this guy, Johnny Depp was not a bankable star. Johnny Depp had made interesting career choices. Yeah, he had the occasional Sleepy Hollow success, but he did a movie from the previous year that I love, still to this day called Blow. And he had a lot of different things like Chocolat. These are movies that aren't really bankable. So I can understand Michael Eisner thinking, what the fuck are you doing putting this guy in the forefront here? But the second he enters this movie to the very end of it, I love him in this movie. Now, I don't remember the sequels at all. Hell, I barely remember this movie, but the answer to whether or not I could put what we've heard about him recently behind me and actually think about the role is yes. I love him in this movie. Every single little twitch that he does, every single little movement that he does, every single time he steps in this movie, he is grand, and I love him in it. Yeah, I agreed, and I had the same issue and thought process. I've been pretty dang hard on Johnny Depp. Don't take any of that back. I was worried and wondered how I was going to go about it and once captain jack is introduced on screen that's what i'm watching that doesn't sway me in any way when i'm watching the performance in this one i wholeheartedly agree i think this is our generation not yours sorry guys this is my generation's indiana (laughs) this is sort of my generation's indiana jones where it's a character original to the screen that much like indy has this iconic introduction and spawned a franchise and took an actor to the stratosphere. This was really, for better or worse, the turning point in Johnny Depp's career. A, he became a box office draw, and B, he took on these more eccentric characters outside of just Tim Burton movies. This is Iron Man for Johnny Depp. Oh, it absolutely absolutely is. is. And the other thing that I want to mention is we talked about, when we talked about Avatar, do we see any Navi or anything like that at Comic-Con? I've been to a lot of cons since that movie. I haven't seen too many. Every single con, you see at least five Jack Sparrows. (laughs) This role has taken on a life all of its own, and it's all due to what Depp brings to it. So Jack Sparrow was, was a role that was talked about and originally the character changed. He was originally going to be strictly a vaudevillian type of character that wasn't necessarily integral to the story. But I guess in a rewrite, they upped his role without making him the main character, which is something we'll definitely talk about going forward. But in this one movie, Jim Carrey, to the surprise of no one, was up for this role. But he was working on Bruce Almighty and couldn't do it. Michael Keaton was up for this role, which is mm. interesting because he was not the star he was or the star he would re-become recently. And the third was Christopher Walken, which if you saw Peter Pan live, you saw what that could have been. (laughs) This is one of those rare roles where you cannot see anybody else in it. 
Matt, you mentioned Indiana Jones. This is definitely something that he took by the horns, and he brings so many things. Like, the way they do the makeup over his eyes, it makes every single time he expresses himself stand out, because you're looking at those eyes every time he expresses himself. This is the Johnny Depp that I loved coming into this movie, because I was a huge Depp fan coming into this movie. That was probably the one thing that brought me into it. So the Keith Richards thing, we should talk about where that came from. That was, basing it on Keith Richards was entirely a Johnny Depp choice that he did at the table read, and everyone just totally ran with it. And he said that pirates were sort of the rock stars of their day, so it, it makes sense to base on that. And everything from his look, you know, he's got dreadlocks, the beard, he wore contact lenses that doubled as sunglasses, so he never squinted. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this character, but for what it is... I think the Oscar nomination was well-deserved, and quite frankly, he should have won. He makes this character. It's not just painting him up, putting it on, and that's what it is. You could tell that he's actually creating this character, transforming himself into this character. And I do think there's a big difference that way, and he deserves every bit of credit he gets for bringing this character to life. Because what he does as Jack Sparrow is not what's written on the page. It is truly what he does with it. It's the inverse of what he's been doing lately or after this, not the Jack Sparrow part, where it's, I'm going to let the costuming do all the work for me. Right here, it's an extension of himself. So he arrives in Port Royal, bribes the guy to say, look, I'll give you three bucks if you don't mention my name. As the guy turns around, he takes his little purse and walks away. We then cut to Norrington's promotion ceremony, where he is about to propose to Elizabeth, but a corset, unfortunately, constricts her blood flow, and she falls off the side of the castle and somehow does not die, because even the character says, it's a miracle she missed all those rocks. Like something had to add an ADR when they realized the shot was full of rocks. (laughs) I thought of the same thing. And while this is going on, Sparrow is having a conversation with these two guards, trying to convince them or distract them so he can, as he says, I am just here to get a, get a ship, get a crew in Tortuga, and just pillage and plunder until I die. He has no... Tell the truth. At this point, he has no motivation. And this is a character that, and I compliment the writing, the movie does such a wonderful job of always making you question what and who is Jack Sparrow playing. Yeah, the mystery behind Sparrow is a lot of what propels this movie. Oh, this is the key thing. He is technically a supporting character. It is Will and Elizabeth's story when you look at it as far as from a traditional storytelling. Jack Sparrow is sort of the, I would call, sort of the the Fagin, like an Oliver Twist, where he absolutely affects the story, but the movie's not about him, which it's, it's weird saying that in this series, going back to watch this one, when you look at what happened later, but not to get into that. And this is also where we get some exposition about the Black Pearl, where they talk about it as myth. Like, it's this ship that doesn't exist, where it's the crew's all damned, and they say the captain is so evil that hell spat him back out. So I like that they're doing with pirates, there's factuality with a lot of the policies, stuff later on that happens in the movie is historically accurate, but they're combining supernatural and mythic elements to piracy. As Elizabeth falls in the water, we see the gold coin emit some kind of a shockwave, and Jack Sparrow, showing he's not a complete scumbag, dives in and saves her. But what does he get for it? A pair of handcuffs. Norrington comes down, he's like, oh, you're a pirate, and the governor's like, hang him. And this is where they realize he's Jack Sparrow because he's got the tattoo, and they give him shit where he's like, so I don't see your ship. He's like, oh, I'm in the market. (laughs) I I like this move by Norrington when he grabs his hand to shake his hand and pulls up the sleeve, you know, and you see the branding. And then, I mean, it shows that he's the man that's even more straight than Orlando Bloom's character is, but he's smart, he's wise, he deserves his role, and he completely picks Jack apart just 
bit by bit by seeing who he is. We get the talk about Tortuga trading and all that, which was real. The brand that they used was a, the real brand that they used for on Pirates, except they used to brand them on the forehead. So the little details, the East India Trading Company, all the little details they have on them are accurate. And it's little things like that that are just amazing they went ahead and put in. And this tattoo is actually a fake tattoo, but right after the filming of this, <laughs> Depp, of course, had to have it really mm-hmm. done. So this is actually a real tattoo on him now. Yeah, this is tremendous. And it could be looked at as Norrington being the bad guy of this because the second you see Jack Sparrow, you're rooting for him, right? And he is kind of Jack Sparrow's enemy throughout the course of this. But it makes it all the more worthwhile when you see how he's written and that he's not actually that kind of character. It's just kind of background fodder for what really goes on. So the movie also does a great job of never letting you 100% buy Jack Sparrow as a hero because what is the first thing he does after he saves her? He uses Elizabeth as leverage, as a hostage, to get himself out of the situation. This is where the, the Johnny Depp real-life thing reflects when she has to put his belt on him and things like that, and she calls him despicable. I'm like, oh, this is, uh, this is art reflecting reality, sadly, but it doesn't rest too long. Jack manages to escape, and he winds up in the blacksmith shop that Will is an apprentice at, and we get a really... What doesn't get enough credit in this movie is the the sword choreography, where it's clearly rehearsed, but this is not the Star Wars prequels where people are flipping around and they're just hitting swords back and forth just because they can. It's clearly methodical, and we have to talk about the, the choreographer of this worked on Errol Flynn movies. He was like 90-something years old, Bob Anderson, and that's why it looks as authentic as it does. It should be said, he also worked on Star Wars, too. The choreography in this is tremendous, and from what I read, I believe Verbinski said that Will is actually the best swordsman, and Sparrow is actually the worst swordsman. (laughs) But I agree, the choreography here is tremendous. I really enjoy, I don't know if we've gotten to the Jack and uh, Will fight yet, but a lot of what is brought here is different, and here the choreography complements the story, not the other way around. It's also character information being divulged because Jack says a line that's foreshadowed where he says, you look familiar. Have I threatened you before? Mm -hmm. Uh, And you have characters later on say, oh, he's the spinning image of his father. So there's these little, what you think are throwaway lines that actually enforce stuff you see later on. And Jack is just messing with him because he uses his movement to do a complete 180 so he can be closer to the door and leave. But Will mm-hmm. doesn't let him leave, throws a sword, and as Garrett mentioned, Will is the best swordsman, but Jack's a pirate and he's not afraid to cheat because he pulls out a gun at the end. Yeah. But not before uh, emasculating a bit where he's like, you got to find yourself a girlfriend making all these swords. <laughs> <laughs> they also establish Will doesn't like pirates. He refers to them as it, doesn't give them any proper pronouns. But Jack also has a foreshadowed line where he says, this shot is not meant for you. Again, mm-hmm. in one line, you think, oh, that... He just doesn't want to kill him, but you realize, oh, there's actual context to this. But before Jack can escape, Will's drunken master knocks him unconscious, and once again, Will is 0 for 2 in getting the credit for actually doing the work. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Matt, we talked about Orlando Bloom. Who else was up for this role? There's a lot. Speaking of Star Wars, Ewan McGregor. There was, you mentioned Heath Ledger, you mentioned Jude Law, Christian Bale was up for it, and Tom Hiddleston auditioned before anyone knew who he was. Oh, that's funny. Wow. I can definitely see Heath Ledger in this role. Um, Probably. Like, if you've seen A Knight's Tale. Absolutely, yeah. That's exactly, yeah. I wonder if it was Heath Ledger playing this role, whether it would come off any better than what Orlando Bloom is given credit for. Because we mentioned, I don't think Orlando Bloom really gets that much credit for this or any other role besides Legolas, honestly. And even that role, by the time the Hobbit movies came out, was kind of dimmed. I just wonder if Ledger would have brought something else. I think Ledger would have, just based on his body of work. I think he would have brought 
if not upstaged Johnny Depp, he would have put himself more in a playing field with him. I don't think he would have ever come across as necessarily subservient, but there's always so much I can knock Orlando Bloom, because a, a, a lot of Will's better stuff doesn't come until later, where mm-hmm. he sort of flesh out his character. So we cut to Jack in prison, where we get the most blatant reference to the ride, where he yeah. says, uh, you've been doing that forever, that dog is never going to move, which is... That dog is never going to move. That's my, yeah. I do one look, of my favorite lines I, in the movie. And one of my favorite it's a great references. line. There's another pretty blatant reference later that I'll talk about, but yeah, this, this was actually really good. Because anybody who's written that ride know that scene of the dog just kind of sitting there as everybody's reaching for the keys. Jack's in jail. We cut to Elizabeth in a scene that Gorbachev must love Raiders of the Lost Ark because he repeats the gold object causes candlelight to go out because a ship shows up as Jack says, you know, it is the Black Pearl, one of the great lines. Oh, there's no survivors. So where do the stories come from? So here we get some actual, this is where the money was spent because they lay siege to this town. Elizabeth is running for her life in the governor's mansion, chased by two guys who might as well be out of the Three Stooges. Until they shoot a dude point-blank in the head, chasing her through her mansion. This, to me, I put this in the same camp as a movie like Gremlins or Ghostbusters to where, yeah, it's for kids. But if you're young enough or not mature enough, there's some stuff in here that will torture you. This action scene, this assault on Port Ryle, like, there is... I mean, just a multitude of stabbings, killings. I mean, it's violent and vicious, and it's it's amazing that yes, it's PG thirteen. It still blows me away that this much wanton death got done with the Walt Disney banner playing before this film. Especially being that Disney is taking so many methods now to sanitize down the ride and take away certain aspects of it that this scene alone was just so i mean properly violent you know you got dead pirates attacking port royale but oof i think there's some pretty big shifts in tone that happen throughout the movie i don't think they're all smooth this is one that i didn't expect and couldn't remember just how violent it got yeah we're gonna have a guy's eye fall out later i mean there there are certain things in this movie where i cannot believe they got away with what they did but this scene here i had completely forgotten about this scene and it's really really well choreographed and verbinski proves here i mean he didn't prove it with the ring he proves here that man he can really helm an action scene very well they also tease you with the supernatural where will throws an ass into someone, and he comes back later after something that very visibly should have killed him. But Elizabeth is run down by by two guys. So these two actors I know from Seinfeld and the the UK version of The Office. And I think they're amusing. Mm -hmm. They serve their purpose well, but it's just strange that you have two duos that serve as comic relief. Yep, we get just enough of them. I think if there had been any more of them, I think it would have gone over the edge for me. But just enough to keep it entertaining. And they're also like, one of them is menacing enough to where you don't feel like they're not a threat whatsoever. They shot the doorman, basically. But before they can shoot Elizabeth, she invokes parlay, which basically means, you know, you have to take me to your captain. Which, for the way that those two guards earlier talked about him, you're thinking to yourself, oh, who's the captain? If hell spat him back out, is this really what she should want? So she's taken aboard the Black Pearl, but not before Jack tries to get out of jail with the bone, even though he just chastised those guys for doing the same thing earlier. (laughs) Two guys come down, and we learn that Jack was part of their crew at some point. We don't know that he was the captain just yet. One of them reaches their arm through the jail cell, and we get the 
first shot of a skeletal pirate with feral going, so there is a curse. That's a really nice reveal. And there was something I was watching for, guys, when I was watching this movie for this podcast is, you know, I hadn't really seen this, again, since all those sequels had come out. So I was looking for things where, okay, are they setting things up here? But this is one big piece. The only thing Disney did here was they added that subtitle just in case. This thing became a franchise, but there was no confidence in this whatsoever. They were going to call it Pirates of the Caribbean. So I'm watching this thinking, okay, are they going to lay some groundwork here for future sequels? And it's really not. All these reveals are so well done because it's all contained within this one piece. And my God, I wish filmmakers would take notes on how to do that because nobody knows how to do that anymore. Thank you. Yes. I mean, that's what it is. You don't feel like we're just laying breadcrumbs for something that will pay off years down the road. Everything pays off within this. I mean, still long. We're still talking 235, but all within one film. Such a difference. They don't expel Jack from prison. They leave him there to rot because clearly there's some bad blood. But Elizabeth is brought aboard the Black Pearl. Before she can even get a sentence out, she gets pimp slapped, but is stopped from getting a second one by Captain Barbosa, played by Jeffrey Rush. And this is the role that De Niro was considered for. But he said, being De Niro, this movie is going to flop. I think everybody said that, though. And to be perfectly honest, I fucking love Jeffrey Rush in this movie. I love mm. Jeffrey Rush. He, he is, what I love so much about this character is that it brings me back to the golden era of Disney, where villains could just be evil. Yeah. Yep. He's got a justifiable motivation when you learn what the pirates are actually seeking. But he's a piece of, he's a scumbag. He's the one who bends the rules more than anybody when you get into the technicalities. Plays it just right. And Verbinski said, I cast him because I knew he was not going to approach this in a way where he was looking for complexity. He would play it straightforward, which is what this movie entails. This is an amazing English actor. This isn't some action bad guy type. But no, this is British Oscar stage. winner. Oscar winning. I mean, this is, it's Jeffrey Rush. But it is unmistakable to say anything other than he elevates every time that Barbosa's on screen. Even the decision that he made, knowing that people watch movies the way they read, left or right. So he's going to stand stage left mm -hmm. so that you always see him first. You know, little things like that. But, God, he is just – he is fun menacing. He's that just – evil that you are loving to watch. I mean, Jack is whatever, chaotic evil, not chaotic evil, but whatever on that yeah, chart. He's chaotic neutral. He's like smack dab. Yeah, where Barbosa's just, you'd hate to be on his crew, but you'd love to watch what happens to them. Yeah, and every single franchise needs a strong villain. I know some down, sometime down the road, in the five years that Matt has laid out, we're going to talk about Die Hard. And how can you talk about Die Hard without talking about Alan Rickman? Hell, I'm a big proponent of Jeremy Irons in that third Die Hard movie. I think Jeffrey Rush was a great casting job because you don't expect him to take a role like this. And what he brings to it is menacing. Yet, like you said, Matt, it all makes sense because of what he's after. It, it's not that he is evil just for evil's sake. He is out for something that seems viable. And that's what I love about this role. He comes off menacing because he's, he's also a smartass where he's like, I'm disinclined to acquiesce to request. That's code for no, sweetheart. <laughs> and here she calls him out on her bluff with the coin. So it's made pretty clear that they need this for some reason. And she says her name is Turner, to which one of the characters says bootstrap, which we don't know what that means just yet. So again, we're talking about this movie does such a great job of laying the, the breadcrumbs out and not spelling things out for you, even though it's quote unquote a kid's movie. So she convinces Barbosa to stop the siege on Port Royal, but he doesn't agree to take her back to shore 
because he lays down the law saying, you're not a pirate, so the rules don't apply to you. And technically, they're more like guidelines than actual rules. <laughs> yeah, so she's now effectively a prisoner of war. We cut to the day after where Will shows up to say, you know, we got to go after her, to which Norrington says, for lack of a better word, know your place. You would think, looking at this movie, Sweet Disney, he would be the Gaston of this movie, Norrington, but he's really not. Everything he does totally makes sense. And even when you get to his resolution at the end, it's not from a place of mustache-twirling villainy. Yeah, he's got his own sense of nobility in the choices that he's making throughout. Will says, "We let's go talk to Jack. He must know where they are. But they're like, oh, Jack was left in his cell, so they're clearly not with him. We get the, the Greek meme of that's not good enough. I've seen that gif more times than I would care to admit, and it works well every time. So Will goes to see Jack in the jail, and he says that I can get you out of here if you help me. But Jack has no interest until he realizes his name is Will Turner, and he asks him, no doubt named after your father, and that's what instills him to bring up. So again, we're seeing Jack... The wheels are turning of, oh, I'll help him out, but I think I can get something out of this. And knowing what we will know later, it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. This, again, is so amazing because we still at this point don't really know the motivation of Jack Sparrow. Certain things trigger him, but we don't know why. And again, this is unweaving that yarn of, okay, this is another reveal that this last name is what gets him to join him, but we don't know why. Will manages to break the door off because Jack's like, oh, the key's right off. We're not getting out of here. So he has to use, because he built the jail cell, he gets him out. And they say they're going to commandeer a ship, but not before getting underneath a canoe and walking on the bottom of the ocean in order to get to the other side, which scientifically doesn't make any sense. But I like that the movie calls it out where he's like, this is either madness or brilliance. He's like, oh, it's funny how often those two things coincide. So they try to take over the Dauntless, or so they seem. Norrington brings over the Interceptor, which has been talked about earlier as the fastest ship. Jack and Will pull a swerve, to use a wrestling term, and jump onto the Interceptor and manage to outrun the other ship, to which Norrington's lieutenant says, oh, that's going to be the smartest pirate I've ever seen. This is great because, as you said, it's just a line dropped earlier that the Dauntless is the grandest ship in the fleet, but the Interceptor is the fastest ship in the fleet. So which one are you going after? Oh, the finest. Nope. You know, smart wordplay earlier to set up how the speed of the ship matters for the rest of the film. The fact that they went for the fastest ship actually matters. It does make the Royal Navy look kind of stupid because they didn't leave anybody on the Interceptor. Yeah. But that notwithstanding. Constantly. Yeah. So we get more downtime with Will and Jack, which is needed, where he tells them, yeah, I knew your father. He was a pirate. Bootstrap Bill. So now we understand why everyone in the Black Pearl sort of got giddy when they heard Elizabeth use that name. Jack hangs Will off the side of the boat and says, look, you follow my orders or I'm going to just leave you for dead, basically. So we're setting up that these two don't necessarily get along, even though they have no other option. Well, it's the oldest story, isn't it? Two people who don't get along that have the same goal. And in looking at this as just a pirate movie, that is a very, very common, I'll go ahead and say trope, but what these writers do a good job of is making it a viable trope because of the way they outline these two characters. As Jack alluded to, though, they're going to Tortuga, which is basically the wild, wild west, where there is apparently no rules, no law. It's just you can do whatever you want. And they go to recruit Mr. Gibbs, who we saw in the prologue, who has seemingly left the Royal Navy and is sleeping with pigs. To which he gets a second bucket of water, courtesy of Will, who says that was for the smell. Fresh off of the ride as well, <laughs> where you have a scene, if you're paying attention to the side, where you got a gentleman sleeping, cuddled up to a pig. Good call. So 
Jack takes Will and Gibbs to a bar, tells him I'm going after the Black Pearl, to which Gibbs says, why are you doing that, basically? Because Barbosa's, I wouldn't make a deal with him. And Jack, one of my favorite little things that Depp does is this head tilt. He says, that's the child of Bootstrap Bill Turner, so I have leverage. But he doesn't realize that Will hurt him. So no self-awareness on the part of Jack. So they all agree to go find a crew and go after the Black Pearl. So we got the wheel set in motion as far as Jack wants to get the Black Pearl back because it's revealed he was captain at some point. So now we're starting to see the pieces coming together. And speaking of pieces, the best segue I will ever do, we then get Elizabeth on the ship on the Black Pearl where Barbosa invites her for dinner and tells her the story of all the Aztec gold pieces that are the crux of this curse that they're all afflicted by. Best scene of the movie. Where yeah, tells her that we took the gold, we spent it, we did everything we wanted, but we realized that there was nothing we could do to satisfy our cravings, and we're cursed. And he tells her, I mean, I guess the good thing that Jeffrey Rush's character can't eat, because he makes up for it by devouring the scenery in the best way. <laughs> uh, and he tells her, like, look, to lift the curse, we got all the pieces back thanks to you, and I'm not going to kill you yet, basically, because he says we need a blood sacrifice. How does she respond? She stabs him in the chest, and this is where we get the first blatant thing where these guys cannot die, to which he says, oh, yeah, what were you planning on doing after you stabbed me? Yeah, and this is also when he takes rum and he drinks it down, and this is also a scene straight from the ride where you see somebody drinking this rum and it's going right through them, straight from the ride. Just a tremendously done scene. Like, the reveal as they come into the moonlight is tremendous. The lighting here is great. Another thing I want to compliment, too, is the CGI. A lot of CGI from this time does not age well. Oh, this is this is fucking seamless. This is really, really good. I love the CGI in this movie. Yeah. So I think there's a reason why, and this is going from the special features. They used beef jerky as the template for the texturing on the skeletons. So because there's something tangible outside of the technology, I think that's why it looks as good as it does. There's only a couple instances where you see some of the seams start to crease, but for a movie that's 20 years old, I mean, look, we see movies that are 10 years old that don't look as good as this. Yeah. Yeah, and this is what Verbinski talked about, where it's got some horror tinge, but it's still got the spirit of the ride. And you get a jump scare with a monkey. Yet again, though, it's another thing where if they made this today, this monkey would be CGI. And the fact that it's not CGI really, really helps it. Yeah, positively. So Elizabeth is basically a prisoner because she she can't get off. I guess not in that way, you, you monsters. I kept my mouth shut. God, that was hard. He's 17 years old. Yeah. Speaking of of keeping your mouth shut, we then cut to Jack having his crew, one of which involves a mute. Did you notice who else is on this crew that we did discuss recently? Yeah, this is the weirdest thing. So it's always Aldana. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about this. The movie that almost made her quit acting. Yeah, Yeah. she hated the experience of working on this movie. And the weird thing about this is she has come out in the press and said that, yeah, this was not a good experience. I almost quit, as you said, Matt. And then, like, years later, I guess Bruckheimer got in touch with her and was like, look, I like to think that my sets have are very good experiences. I'm sorry you didn't have a good one. And she really took that to heart. Like, she thought that was a really big thing of him to do. But goddamn, did I just not remember that she was in this fucking movie. (laughs) It continues the tradition in this movie of Jack Sparrow being slapped by women. Well, we get the, yeah, which is that fucking foreshadowing. <laughs> Earlier on, we get the introduction of the redhead that is famous from the ride that walks up and slaps Jack. Oh, that's right, because he got the name wrong, called her the wrong name. Mm-hmm. So Jack says, look, you come with me, you get the ship, to which all of them seem to agree. And then we cut to Elizabeth waking up after probably not getting much sleep to where they go to the Isla de Muerta which is where they want to lift the curse. 
which is intercut by Jack and company trying to sail there, and Gibbs gives all the exposition about Jack's backstory. I don't know exactly how he knows this. It's never explained how he knows Jack. It's just one of those things where he was in the Navy, seemingly left, and then he comes back in the movie again. Yeah, he's, he's very cozy with everybody for being someone who was in the Navy not that long ago. But he's a delightful character. His interactions with everybody is jovial. Like, Gibbs is just a great character. So you don't think of it until you think of it. He tells him that at one point, Jack was the captain of the Black Pearl until Barbosa committed mutiny, and they stranded him on an island where they talk about how, and this is true to piracy, they stranded him on an island marooning with one pistol shot, which ties into the line earlier. He's saving it for Barbosa. And then there's the myth of how did Jack Sparrow escape this island? Well, apparently, if you listen to the stories... He strapped a bunch of sea turtles together into a raft using human hair from his back. I love that final line by death in that scene. It's tremendous. Barbosa's crew makes it to the island where Barbosa talks about how, look, we got all the pieces back. And Elizabeth thinks she's going to have her throat slit, but instead they just do a little cut on her hand to which Barbosa goes, waste not. But apparently the curse doesn't work. As Barbosa is unsure, he pulls out a gun and just shoots him. <laughs> But everyone's like, oh, you're not dead. So clearly it didn't work. Elizabeth reveals that, yeah, she's not Turner Barbosa. Again, Kira Knightley gets slapped a lot in this movie. I totally forgot how many times she gets hit. I want to say there's four times. And because you know you're watching a Disney movie, it's one of those where you're like, oh, shit. You know, you just don't expect it. Yeah, and she's also technically underage, so it's even more blurring. Jack and Will go in to save her. Will knocks out Jack because he says he's not going to be his leverage. He rescues Elizabeth, she takes the medallion, and they leave Jack behind because they have to keep to the code, which is one of my favorite running gags in the movie where they talk about the code, where some people really adhere to it, like it's the Bible, and you have people like Barbosa who just use it as when it suits them. More guidelines. What does Jack do when he's confronted by the Black Pearl crew? He invokes parlay, to which the guy goes, God damn, whoever thought of parlay, because it's the second side. <laughs> I love the joke, though. I think it was the French. And that gag goes on in the outtakes where he talks about how they invented mayonnaise, too, and he got the other guy to start laughing. (laughs) So as you would expect, Barbosa's not happy to see Jack. He basically tells him, how the hell did you get off that island? And he just goes, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. (laughs) Which is you're out of everything when it comes to Sparrow. This is a character that we don't know too much about. Lord knows we'll find out more about him in the sequels. Here, you just kind of have to take him at his word because of just how eccentric he is. You know, this is where Depp's eccentricness brings a lot to the role. Everything he says, you have to believe. And then again, Jack pivots because he says, oh, the girl's blood didn't work, did it? And this is where he flat out puts the wheels in motion to sell out Will to potentially get the Black Pearl back. So again, he's got more heel and face turns in this movie than Kane. <laughs> it is nice that you don't know what side he's ever playing with. It's yeah, great. I love that about him, too. Yeah. It's why this movie works as well as it does. Absolutely. So him and Barbosa meet where he basically tells him, look, I should thank you because I'm not cursed because you left me on that island to die. And he says, look, let me go over to their ship, get the medallion that Elizabeth took, and you give me the ship. To which Barbosa has one of my favorite lines. People are easier to search when they're dead. So here we get our first big naval battle of the movie, which is about 10 minutes, but again, when I talk about the writing of this movie, the Transformers movie should have taken notes from this, because even this action scene is broken up into three acts. You have the chase, you have the cannon battle, and you have the boarding sequence. Depp is great in this, too, because you just hear him yelling, what are you doing to my ship? Stop blowing up my ship! And and again, his eyes are so expressive that it just makes you laugh every single time. (laughs) Before that, Will and Elizabeth do have a conversation about how 
he gets all pissed off because she took his medallion. He thought he lost it. So he his father sent it to him, presumably to screw Barbosa and company over, which turns out to be true, as we find out a little bit later. Uh, this is really one of the only scenes they have together. And I think it's important to the story because these two need to have more screen time if you want to get to the resolution of this movie. Yeah, it was really weird. I was not expecting them to have just this one scene. Mm-hmm. And it's fine, but it's just one of those things where... Matt, me and you talk about it so much. Just because you have a male and a female, they have to get together. And you don't really feel that with these two. And I don't know, I don't sense that much chemistry between them, but I do like that they're at least trying. I think it works in the way that old school Hollywood movies worked, where it's just two pretty people get together. Yeah, and and listening to Verbinski, that's exactly what he was going for. Like, he is a big fan of that old school Hollywood type mentality of filmmaking. And yeah, you can definitely sense that here. And these battles are great where it's, you know, the sh- that they try to outrun each other. You know, we see Elizabeth, again, we talk about strong female empowerment. It's not just a woman picking up a sword. She has the idea of using the anchor to do a 180 and get behind them eventually. That's a great shot. A lot of really great stuff, you know. And these are practical mm-hmm. ships. Like, that's the amazing thing. Like, it's not CG. The tall ship that they use through these movies frequently comes here to the Delta, California here, specifically to the Antioch docks. And you can walk alongside, uh, walk on the ships and take a tour of it. So oh, it's, wow. it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing that they use practical ships. The Black Pearl, for the longest time, they actually took it. They towed it to Disney's private island, their castaway key that they have down in the Bahamas, where you visit when you take a cruise. They've removed it since, but I always thought it was awesome that they built ships to freaking use. You don't see that anymore. No one's going to make that effort. That's amazing. And and again, Verbinski's using old school tactics here. We have practical effects. We have stunts going on here. There's a lot of great stunts here. Just all old school filmmaking combined with new school for 2003 anyway, filmmaking. And it, it all meshes really well. A lot of times when you get stuff like this, it doesn't mesh that well. Here, take the supernatural element. You take the comedic elements. You take the scary elements. You take everything and you combine it. A lot of times it doesn't mesh. This one really does. You also have to really compliment the staging because of how everyone is blocked off. There's these massive crowd shots where very few people are digitally inserted. So Verbinski is working with crowds in some of these scenes, not just the battle scenes. Like there's the part in the end when they rescue Jack from being hung, where it's almost 100 people that he's having to block. And it's just it's just great stuff all around. The Black Pearl and the Interceptor go at it with cannons. Barbosa's crew eventually boards the ship. Will tries to go down and get the medallion, but is seemingly killed as the Interceptor is blown up, but not before Jack, the monkey, is able to retrieve the medallion. To which Barbosa says, oh, not you, we named the monkey Jack. That was great. Will seemingly returns from the dead. He gives himself up, which Jack does not want him to do because he loses his leverage on Will. Uh-huh. He's like, who is he? He's no one. He's my brother's nephew's former roommate, basically, is the excuse he uses. Will says, all right, take me as dead, to which Barbosa again, bends the rules, name your terms, which is great, because then we see them about to do the most stereotypical pirate thing possible of walking the plank. All the big pirate cliches that people think of, a talking parrot, walking the plank... Shiver Me Timbers is mentioned. It's all here. But it's not forcibly here, Matt. That's the point I want to make is this is all stuff that previously in Cutthroat Island and things was looked down upon. And I think with what everybody has brought to this movie, from Johnny Depp to Gore Verbinski on, it seems like this is all stuff that's actually happening instead of being forcibly done. And it's tremendous. It's really, really a very economically done film. Barbosa says, yeah, I agree she'd go free, but you need to tell me where to. 
<laughs> and he makes her undress, and he goes, oh, it's still warm. But not only is Elizabeth stranded, Barbosa points out to Jack, oh, this is the same island I left you on last time. And he tells him, look, I'll give you the pistol, and you can be nice and shoot her, and then you starve. Uh, as he throws them both off board, to which Johnny Depp, Jack Sparrow, has one of my favorite lines in the movie. That's the second time I had to watch that man sail away with my ship. <laughs> <laughs> Great delivery. Gary, you said the keyword economical. The movie now slows down. You're seeing Jack actually spend time with Elizabeth, which yeah. has not happened since he used her as bait to free himself. And we find out that it's all but a ruse. As he says, I just sat here on a beach for three days drinking nut rum, and I bartered passage off a ship that rum runners were using for this island. It's not that he's a fraud, because we see that he's clearly capable with a sword, and obviously he survived long enough, but all the Jack Sparrow myths, it's all bullshit, which is sort of commentary on... A lot of the golden age of piracy, a lot of the things that we think of really actually didn't happen as we're told. Yeah, this is a very nice reveal. Elizabeth chooses to play along as they get drunk, talks about how ships are freedom, wakes up the next day to see Elizabeth burning everything to cinder, <laughs> including the rum. The rum is gone. <laughs> and this is Johnny Depp's, should have been Johnny Depp's Oscar clip with the why is the rum gone? Yes, got the biggest response in the theater. I remember that. So she gives the long explanation about the smoke signal and stuff, and then he goes, yeah, but why is the rum gone? Yeah. <laughs> Everything's about the rum. Then he pulls out the gun and he's about to get homicidal. <laughs> he pulls the gun out and, yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm sure he does He does the John McClane thing where he's talking to himself. And he's like, they sees the ship and he goes, there'll be no living with her after this. <laughs> Which I, I assume a lot of his lines had to be improvised. Oh, positively. Yeah. This isn't stuff that's written on paper. But this little break here on the island, you know, this movie, as we've talked about, has been moving along. And this, there's still information that's delivered here that still transports us to someplace else. When we get here, it brings characters back into it. But it's still a nice kind of breather from what we've had before we get into our next act. Indeed, characters do return because her father and Norrington show up to rescue her. But they have no interest in going back for Will because they say he broke the law. Like, he aided Jack to get out of prison, essentially a fugitive. But she convinces them because of, speaking of leverage, do it as a wedding gift. Until she pulls a Mary Jane Watson at the end and leaves him at the altar. <laughs> Can I also mention, because I know Matt will never mention it, but I want to talk about the score here. By I was waiting for this. <laughs> this was a funny experience watching this movie, because oh, I'm watching it. Was it, it for you too? <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching it, and I'm thinking, God damn, I've heard, because I haven't seen this movie in so long. But I'm watching, I'm like, fuck, I know I've heard some of this somewhere. <laughs> and I looked it up. I had just watched Drop Zone last summer, believe it or not. And Zimmer took part of that score and put it in this. <laughs> but you know what? It's tremendous. And I know there's 15 different composers on this soundtrack. And, and uh, Alan Silvestri was hired and taken off before they went into production. But I think the score to this is tremendous. And it's some of Zimmer's best work. And I know there's some themes that I like even more coming up in the sequels. But his stuff here, it moves the film along. And it's the perfect accompaniment for this pirate story. And Zimmer didn't do the entire score. Not the entire thing, no. No, he did the... He did the themes. He did the themes, and this is where... This is where I hate some some of Hollywood's game playing. The themes that he really gets credit for are the themes of his own that he reused. He took his gladiator theme, and that's Jack's theme for this movie. And there's clips that put them side by side. He stole from himself, and that's the main theme of this movie. And it drives me nuts. I love it, but it's literally Under Pressure and Ice Ice Baby. It's that close to one another. I guess he can do it because it's himself, 
But yeah, I do love the score throughout. I think the Pirates music is stands out. It's rousing. It's amazing. There's a nighttime show at Disneyland called World of Color, and there's a scene in it where it's water jets like the fountains at the Bellagio with flames shooting up, and this Pirates theme is just blasting, and it's phenomenal. But I'll say, it was Gladiator. <laughs> and, and I'll never not hear it as, as such. And drop zone. <laughs> well, as someone who can't stand Gladiator, I will think of this first and foremost. These movies... Yeah have some of my favorite compositions Hans Zimmer has ever done. The ones that he made for these movies. And this theme, to me, this is, you know, I think of John Williams, the Indiana Jones, the Raider March. I think of oh yeah, the Superman theme. I think of some of the, the great movie themes of all time, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. I put this up there. You play the first five seconds, my brain automatically knows what it's from. Who knows, they might play this at the wedding that we see at the end of the movie, because that's what she uses to convince them to go after Will. So they devise a plan to get on the boats, leave the Dauntless, and then ambush them, and Jack convinces Norrington to let him in as leverage. And This is one of the scenes where you can see them almost break character when they're, yeah. when they're on the canoe, which I imagine is hard to do with, with Giant Depp in this movie. So he convinces him, let me go in, and as Barbosa's giving the same spiel, he sees Jack and just stops talking. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, it's not possible. He's like, no, it's not probable. Jack says, look, basically tells him, everybody gets what he wants. Barbosa is just like, just shut up. I'm going to kill you next. When he goes, all right, well, and this is also really good screenwriting, where Jack is telling Will, here is the plan, so be ready when I do my face turn yet again. Because he tells both Barbosa and Will, like, everything's out in the open, but he convinces Barbosa so much, and he sells him on, look, give me the black pearl, I'll fly under your colors, give you a percentage of my money, and I'll buy you a hat. <laughs> Which I know Johnny Depp went through a lot of hats while making this movie. I believe they they stopped making them leather after like the 10th one fell off them or something. So I'm pretty sure that's probably an inside joke. Yeah, it is. They have an accord. This is where you get the shot in the teaser trailer of the pirates walking underwater. Mm -hmm. And like Adam said, you know, for a PG-13 movie, you know, it's bloodless, but it's still violent. Like they're stabbing people from behind as they go on the ship. I'm sorry, Avatar 2 and Black Panther don't have a candle on this. And plus, you, you cap that off with the imagery, too. It is a very strong PG-13. But again, this is something I would expect Gore Verbinski to make. This is where he kind of came from right before this movie, is this kind of imagery. And it, and it meshes very well. I think of, like, Peter Jackson when it comes to those Lord of the Rings movies. There's a horror element, especially in Fellowship of the Ring, with those goblins. And then, like, Sam Raimi with the Spider-Man films. You know, there's a there's a definitely an Evil Dead element to those movies. These directors come on to these big, big productions, and they bring their exact aesthetic and when producers allow that to happen credit has to go to Jerry Bruckheimer too because he actually allowed Verbinski to tell the story he wanted to tell and you mentioned Matt that he said that he wanted to bring the laughs he wanted to bring the scares exactly as he felt as he wrote, wrote that right as a child and he does that here he pushes the envelope but he doesn't break it and that's the, the mark of a very good director a criticism that I do have is some of the way that this is lit however it's been a little bit throughout the movie I understand because it's at night Earlier with the scene with Elizabeth and, and Barbosa in his cabin, it's only lit by candlelight. Some of these scenes get hard to look at. They're a little muddy. But that being said, god damn, they're directed so beautifully. And this is when it really gets to it because it keeps going back and forth. And the interaction between CG human or I'm assuming some of this has got to be practical CG enhance enhancements, fucking phenomenal. I believe some of the pirates are digitally imposed in post-production, where the actors were there, and then they just digitally inserted their skeletal counterparts. And we talk about how you balance the scares with the laughs, where they send the two guys out in dresses 
Yes. As, as decoys. He's like, oh, this is what the Greeks did, except they had a horse. And this is when it's, I think it gets a little better as the film goes on of having the jokes at a moment, you know, having the brevity where it needs to be. Because, yeah, you get some pretty good violence here. And then we get an amazing battle between Jack and Barbosa. What's great about this, too, is how Will and Elizabeth are in the back, and Elizabeth's like, so whose side is he on? Will goes, I don't know at this point. <laughs> yeah, at the moment. <laughs> I think that is great, because I think that's also so much of the audience. And that is the kids. You know, it's like, who is he on? Who's he really for? We don't know. He has one of my, I think my favorite line is, I'm dishonest. And a dishonest man, you could always trust to be dishonest. Honestly. Yep. <laughs> throws Will a sword and we get a battle sequence that is as well choreographed as anything you will see and is so minuscule in comparison to the shit we'll see in the sequels yeah yeah. you know because this was made for 140 million not 300 million which is an actual number some of these were made for wow yeah you know, like I said, the sword choreography, it's as, as good as you could expect. And again, for a movie that's 20 years old and is filmed with actors who are not trained sword people. They did some stuff, but look, Jeffrey Rush is much older. You know, and there's never those moments like with Christopher Lee and Attack of the Clones where it's so obviously not him. And part of it is, we didn't talk about this, the costuming in this movie is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And because of Barbosa's hat, and he's wearing all dark colors, you can... You can really play and edit around. You can pick up. And there are times where they do it as a wide as they're battling. And it, you're okay with it because they're so distinct as to who's who. And they're panning back. But when... Sorry, I'll let you get to it because, yeah, the scene that's coming up that matters so much. So we talk about misdirection. Sparrow does it early because we see him more likely than not, steal a piece of the treasure. But so much has happened in the 10 minutes since then that you've probably forgotten, because Barbosa just stabs him, and we see that he took the coin, and he goes, I couldn't resist. It was his ultimate contingency plan. But just when he falls back into the moonlight, you know, just kind of staggers back into it. it oh, great reveal. I had forgotten about this. I had forgotten about this reveal. I had no idea that Sparrow was dead, essentially. This was very, like you said, Adam, it's a very good reveal. And it's something that I'm sure if I watched the movie again, I could probably spot hints of it. It doesn't come out of left field for me. And we never really know exactly until this point where Sparrow's allegiance lies. And this whole reveal is just tremendous in telling us exactly where he's coming from. So they keep fighting, intercutting it with what's happening on the ship. Because Elizabeth has made her way off the ship and tells one of the pirates, if you like pain, try wearing a corset. Directly from the trailer. And it is a very cheesy line. It's the one time in this movie where I kind of sighed, but I still go with it just because it's in the spirit of the film. And this is where they also get around the question of, okay, so can they actually die? Because she puts a bomb in his stomach and then kicks him out of the sunlight and they yeah. explode. So mm-hmm. I guess their heads would still be talking. <laughs> they say, oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is where Verbinski starts to pull off the magic of movie making, where Jack throws the coin, Barbosa pulls out a gun, smash cut to Elizabeth, you hear a gunshot, they cut back to her face, Barbosa turns around and sees Jack holding a smoking pistol, to which he responds, you carried that gun for 10 years and you wasted your shot. Again, tremendous direction here. It may seem old school, but the shot of Kieran Knightley as that gun goes off and she shakes, you're thinking she shot. And then they goes to Jeffrey Rush, who lifts up his shirt, and you see the red seep through. Again, PG-13 movie, and we're seeing him bleed to death, essentially. Tremendous. Very well done. Yep. Kills him dead. Barbosa is killed off. Although, stick around for the post-credits scene. Yeah, because they were doing even that back in the day. And the villains are defeated. We're not sequel baiting. It's just they clearly have won. Because the ones who are stabbed die, and the ones who aren't get surrendered. And there's the line where he tries to use parlay. 
So what does Jack get as payment? He's sentenced to be hung. And they list all of his crimes. And there's one that he, there's one that he stickers at. I think it's like impersonating someone from the clergy. It's impersonating a clergyman. He's like, oh, yeah. It's, that's when it's worth having the closed captioning on, just for them to go through the litany of crimes. But who rescues him? Courtesy of Errol, Orlando Bloom looking the most like Errol Flynn he will ever look. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was watching him like, you know what? He does have a very strong resemblance. He does. Especially in the side profile. Or Captain Morgan, take a pick. If you stare at a bottle of rum long enough and you drink enough of it, it'll probably look like Orlando Bloom. <laughs> He rescues Zach and gets chewed out by Elizabeth's father, saying, look, I gave you clemency because you rescued Elizabeth. And where Will says it's possible for someone to be a pirate and a good person, Norrington says, openly says, look, I expect you to take care of Elizabeth. I understand that she's going with you, but it's not a I'll be back or I will kill you someday. It's left with a certain amount of maturity. And again, you know, after the huge fight that we just saw and the huge battle, this would probably seem like... I don't want to say needless, but it's like we've had so much, but it is essential to this Sparrow character that he gets away. So we have to point that out. And I think the filmmakers do a very good job of inserting this to kind of show where Sparrow is after this battle because I, I don't think I would have thought about it after that battle like if we would have just cut it off after that battle and we would have had Will and Sparrow have a send off and then that's the end I, I could have gone with that but I don't realize until I see this scene how much I actually need it yeah he's a prisoner when Norrington rescues him off the island so part of the deal was we're still gonna hold you captive and also Will doesn't let him go after they kill Barbosa which probably could have happened. But Jack thinks yeah. this is the day you will almost... Before he can finish the line, he falls off the same side that Elizabeth fell off. <laughs> Which is great. And his crew came back for him, even though they had no reason to, because as Elizabeth finds out, we have to stick to the code, and she uses the same Barbosa line. They're fucking guidelines anyway. She doesn't, she doesn't drop an F-bomb, but she might as well. Might as well have, yeah. So they let him on the ship. Jack has the Black Pearl back under his command. He starts singing says, drink up me hearties, yo-ho, closes the compass, and the credits roll for 15 minutes until the post credit scene. Oh, my God. I forgot there was a post credit scene on this movie. Yeah, it's something that's not even talked about. If you go on the Wikipedia page, it's not even listed. It's really? In the plot what, summary. what goes on here? But basically, they go back to Isla de Muerta, where Barbosa's body is. The monkey swims up, takes a piece of the treasure, looks at the camera, becomes skeletal, and growls. So it's not exactly essential, but no, it's, 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 a, ni- not, it's a nice exclamation point. Yeah, it's also not saying Barbosa's coming back. It's just that the monkey survived because Elizabeth took care of him. It's like a, it's like a fun little teaser. It's, it's not really something consequential, but it technically explains why the monkey's in the next movie. So yeah, that's The Curse of the Black Pearl. On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you guys judge this first movie in the series? I'm going to go to Adam first. One of my favorite rides at Disney Parks is Pirates of the Caribbean. And as we discussed, as I discussed at the beginning, that gave me a lot of trepidation going into this. However, it surpassed my expectations when I saw it the first time and many times since. Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, it's a fantastic, engaging summer movie. It's a swashbuckling adventure. That sounds like a cheesy line for a poster, but it really rings true with this. Gore Verbinski does some amazing directing with it. The writers do okay. I think there's a lot of parts of this movie that do get a little sloppy. I do think some of the tone doesn't necessarily transition well from one to another, but Man, this thing is fun for its entire length. And it's a long film. I felt that I think more than my co-hosts here, but it is still a rollicking, which worries me for the uh, coming installments. 
but it's a rollicking good ride all the way through. The casting is so on point. Kira Knightley is fantastic, and I know she continues to be fantastic throughout. Jonathan Price is okay. That type of character doesn't do much for me. But, I mean, the standouts otherwise, Jeffrey Rush as Captain Barbosa and Johnny Depp as Captain Jack. I don't know if there's been such good casting in a Disney movie other than probably Robert Downey Jr. I mean, it is that on point. It is that good. And it is that essential to the success of this movie that makes it, even when things aren't fantastic in the way of the writing, they are just captivating to watch. And this is a movie that is captivating to watch on screen. It's a movie that's captivating to hear. As we discussed, the score is fantastic from beginning to end. This is a score you could pop in the CD and be happy with it. It's a really, really good time. It's amazing where this one sits and that they've had such a hard time getting successful ride films since. It's kind of shocking at that point. I know there's even been a Space Mountain one that's been in limbo ever since this movie came out that they still can't get made. But yeah, this is one. I love to watch it by myself. I love to watch it with the family. And as much as I don't like that they've put Jack Sparrow in the ride when I go to the parks, I'm glad the parks were there to create such a fantastic at least first film here we have going forward. So Pirates of the Caribbean, it's a solid 8 on 10. It is a really good film. It's a really good watch. And not a whole lot more I can say about it. So Adam has his Jolly Roger at full mast. Garrett, what say you? Do you raise the white flag for this movie, or did you give it a passable review? <laughs> I don't like to bring my personal life into these podcasts, but I have to say I've had one of the worst weeks of my life this week. We've had the worst storm since 2004 in Reno, Nevada. I was snowed in from work. A tree fell on my car. I have slipped and fallen on ice at least three times this week. We have just gotten done reviewing three fucking Sometimes They Come Back movies. I was not in a great mood going into this movie. And I will say right now that this was the exact thing I needed to put me back in a good mood. This was two and a half hours of fun. And like I said at the beginning, I didn't know how I was going to feel coming in. I didn't know how I was going to feel about what Johnny Depp brought. I didn't know how I was going to feel about the story. I didn't know how I was going to feel about the fact that this is a ride that has gone on for God knows how many movies we're going to be reviewing here. And I'm not thinking about those sequels here. And that was another thing I had coming in was, could I look at this as one film and not think about the sequels that came out later? And like the answer is yes. This is a very fun, very swashbuckling film that has a tremendous performance here with Johnny Depp. And he's got the supporting cast to support him as well. And Jeffrey Rush, I did not remember him being as funny as he is here. So I'm exactly with my cohort, Adam, here. I give it a solid 8 out of 10. And this is a movie that I haven't seen in 20 years. I will probably be revisiting within the next few months. This is a tremendous ride, and I'm really glad I got to revisit it. To be honest, I'm surprised at both of you. Not because I'm angry at your scores, but I'm, I'm happy that you got such joy out of a movie that brought me so much happiness as a boy. For me, this is everything I like about movies that make me feel like a kid again, because despite what all of you assholes think, I'm not this black-hearted cynic <laughs> burnout. I, I enjoy a good time, and I think this is the definition of when people ask me, what do you want out of a summer movie? Well, executed escapism, this checks all the boxes. I don't think there was anything in there, in this movie, that could have been half-assed at every forefront because no one had the confidence in it. Outside of the director, the producer, the crew, the cast, everyone bought into this 100%, even if they didn't have the full backing of the Mouse House. And I think that enthusiasm and A-level effort 
is why this movie succeeds as well as it does. There is a reason this spawned a franchise. There is a reason that, for better or worse, this has changed Johnny Depp's trajectory as an actor. It defied all expectations. It defied all the rules. For Disney, it was uncharted waters, no pun intended, with a PG-13 rating. And getting back to the age of Disney where they weren't afraid to take you to somewhat dark places as a child because the, the whole thing is designed for the entire family. And I think that's why Disney still has their clutches on people to a certain extent, is that there's movies that touch everybody. And I, and I think this movie in particular appeals to everyone. There's something in here that captures why I enjoy going to the movies and seeing these things with a crowd. And unlike so many movies, this one holds up as well as a, almost anything else from that time period. When I think of the big blockbusters I saw around this time, you compare this to, say, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie, this movie dates better tenfold. I echo the same score as you guys. I have an eight written down as well. But we kind of talked about this on the Q&A show. Movies that got you into movies. I think this one will always hold a special place in that window for me. Because it was the right time. I was the right age. I was old enough to realize that there's something about this that just works. So, 8 out of 10s across the board. Been a long time since that's happened. First 8 out of 10 is across the board of the year. Pieces <laughs> of 8, me hearties. <laughs> I almost now have to bump it to a 9 just for that terrible joke. <laughs> So, where do we go from here? Well, for something that was defying all expectations, as I alluded to earlier, I guess looking at those box office returns, it made sense to do a sequel. But not only did they do mm. one sequel, we did they did back-to-back -back sequels filmed yep. at the same time. They went Matrix 2 and 3. So we'll talk about next week, uh, the second film, Dead Man's Chest. We're not going to do 2 and 3 as one production, despite the filmmakers, <laughs> despite the filmmakers doing that, because we'd be here for six hours. So... My story is, I remember going to see this one clear as day, too. I was, I was 13. It was hyped. This was one of those movies that anyone who was anybody was dying to go see this movie. And you look at the box office numbers, especially in the opening weekend, people were ready for more Pirates. People were ready for more Jack Sparrow. And they looked like they were expanding the lore. But the question was, could they recapture the magic of the first one? You know, that Disney, once-in-a-lifetime type of environment. So... Let me ask, Garrett, you mentioned you've seen these one-and-dones. Is this second movie one of those instances? Oh, yeah. I have a story behind this one as well, which I'll save for next week. But this was definitely a one-and-done. And my question going into next week is the same exact one I had this week. Can it hold up? Now, I remember coming out of this one not too big on it. And I know that was the general consensus when it was out because I was really starting to get into film and reviewing film around this time this movie had come out. And it was kind of frowned upon. And so my question going in is, can this actually hold up as a fun romp as this one was? And I, I will say, watching this last one for this podcast, Curse of the Black Pearl, really did get my anticipation up for the next one. I am looking forward to watching Dead Man's Chest and thinking, can I have a different spin on this than I did when I first came out of it, which wasn't too positive. Adam, what about you, sir? Was this another Netflix exclusive? You know what? I was thinking it was as I'm looking at the day, and I think I had this crossed up with another movie. No, I think this was a wifey at the time while we were dating and I movie. And I think that may have been why we Netflix the first one, was to go see this one in the movie theater. Because I'm like, wait a minute, Dead Man's Chest. No, no, no. Because there are certain things I remember seeing on a big screen. Definitely. So, yeah, this was a theater watch. It was a date watch. And I remember having a different feel of this one than I did Black Pearl. 
And we'll see if I still feel that way when we discuss it. But I remember not being quite as enamored when I saw it. And then the question you have going into something like this is now we have an established property. Now we have something that Disney executives can look at as a moneymaker. So what kind of approach can Gore Verbinski take that feels just as fresh as we just saw? And I am curious to know if he can do that. So I've seen the second one about as many times as I've seen the first one, just based on how many times I watched it on video. I'm curious to go back and watch it myself. It's been a while. And look, I know the the sequels, none of them have the reputation of the first one. But look, that never stopped me before from declaring some sequels better than the original. So we'll see. Until next week when we tackle Dead Man's Chest, thank you all very much for listening. And that's the second time I've had to watch this man sail away with my podcast. Thanks, everyone. Ten years I devoted to the duty you charged me. Ten years I looked after those who died at sea. And finally, when we could be together again, you weren't there. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast, exclusively here at Percolated Media. We're not out of this yet. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Just doing my civic duty, sir. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. You have a date to pay. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. This ship cannot be crewed by two men. You'll never make it out of the bay. Son, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Savvy. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Come to join me, crew lad. Welcome aboard. Edited by Garrett. Do you know how long I've been waiting for this moment? Voiceovers by Adam. I will not have that smile on your face as I strike you down.
Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. I uh, apologize if I seem forward, but I must speak my mind. Now, I saw this opening weekend. I went with my brother and a friend of ours. We all went together, and we came out of there thinking that we had seen a freaking masterpiece. We loved this movie when we came out of it. Um, Adam, how did you see this? It was a... Uh, oh, besides, oh, you said you said that you saw it on Netflix, didn't you? Okay, yep. my bad. Matt, what about you? It's just one of those things where he was in the Navy, seemingly left... And then he comes back in the movie again. Yeah, he's he's very cozy with everybody for being someone that was in the Navy not that long ago. But I tell you, go ahead. But he's a delightful character. 